Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Love Talk Radio. Welcome, welcome, welcome. All right, so what do I have for you lined up today? Well, um, some new polls should scare 
the Biden supporters, um, it is not a good forecast for him, to say the least. We're going to get into that. Um, Then we have Trump's economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, is actually questioned about his um, inability to get anything correct, (laughs) which uh, is pretty important. Now, I don't think that the... I don't think the interviewer goes too hard at him, but they do it a little bit. So at least there's that. And I have some uh, video of him being wrong about everything so that you can get a sense of just how terrible he's been all along. Um, Then we move on to um, Donald Trump saying very scary things on Sean Hannity. Uh, His leadership is the definition of unsteady. And I do not think he's a good leader in a crisis, and you'll see why. Contradicting what governors are saying about what they need. Um, A story about just how much corporatism has ruined our country later on in the show, and it involves ventilators, and it involves uh, a deal that was made with the U.S. government to create ventilators for a situation like this, and exactly how it fell through. Then uh, later on in the show, hate to do it, but we got to go after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, you know, she, she hinted that she understood what was going on with this coronavirus bailout bill, and then she did the exact wrong thing. So we'll touch that. And um, you got a little bit of an old-school secular talk vibe to the show today because I have um, a lot of conservative Christians who are hardcore fundamentalists who are going to make insane claims about the pandemic. So you don't want to miss any of that. That's coming later on in the show. All right, without further ado, let's get started. Actually, let me pull up uh, my video clips real quick. I do have, you know, a decent number of those. But here we go. There's a new poll out that honestly should scare the hell out of Biden supporters. It's from ABC News and the Washington Post, and here are the results. While trailing Trump by 29 points in high-level enthusiasm, Biden makes up some of the difference with those who are somewhat enthusiastic, but he still trails Trump by 12 points in the combined measure, 74 versus 86. So you can see the chart there levels of enthusiasm, and then among Trump supporters, 53% of Trump supporters are ride or die, and they are very enthusiastic to vote for and support Donald Trump. 32% are somewhat, somewhat enthusiastic, and then only 14% are not at all enthusiastic, but they're, you know, like begrudgingly supporting him, and they see like a lot of character flaws, but they still prefer him to the Democrat, and so they'll vote for him and kind of hold their noses. Those numbers are wild, and that actually is right in line with what Trump says whenever he, he tweets like once a month, like 85% or 90% approval rating in the Republican Party. Thank you. He's beloved by his base. And then you look at Biden supporters, that number is terrifying. 24%. of Biden supporters are very enthusiastic. Trump more than doubles Biden among very enthusiastic people. More than doubles. 49% are somewhat enthusiastic for Biden. 
and 26% are not so or not at all enthusiastic about voting for Biden. Now, the enthusiasm gap is real, and it matters. However, it's possible, it's possible that maybe it doesn't mean as much as we think it means, because there's certainly a hell of a lot more enthusiasm for Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary, and look at the results right now. So it's possible that the dynamic of Biden's default support carries him over the finish line, but you're lying to yourself if you think this isn't a strike against Biden and a bad omen. So, some more information on this. The same thing happened with Hillary. 32% were very enthusiastic in September of 2016, and Biden is eight points under that. You know who else had uh, very low enthusiasm? McCain and Romney. What do all those people have in common? Hillary Clinton, John McCain, Mitt Romney. Hmm. What do they all have in common? That's right. None of them won. None of them became president. So, listen, this is, this is some scary evidence against Joe Biden. Now, I will say this, though. Nobody knows what's going to happen. I used to, if you watch this show, you know I've said a million times that I think Trump is going to destroy Biden. I've said it a million times. Um, but there's always an asterisk. There's always a caveat that that's subject to change depending on what happens with the economy and what's happening in the country. And guys, we have a pandemic right now and we have a market crash right now. So, you know, those are two things that really changed the nature of that prediction of mine. And I've, now I've been saying in, in recent times, that's all out the window. Now flip a coin. I don't know who's going to win. You don't know who's going to win. Um, it can go any of a number of ways. There's some historical evidence that during a time of crisis, it favors the incumbent because the public kind of rallies around the leaders in the time of crisis. That's true. But then there's also evidence that when stuff is happening in the country that's negative and deleterious and hurting people, that hurts the incumbent. So, I mean, if you go back and look at George W. Bush's approval rating after 9-11 and then when he started launching these illegal wars, he had an 80, 90 percent approval rating at the time right after 9-11. So there's this thing that happens where even though it was a security failure of the Bush administration and they literally, they had warnings. Bin Laden determined to attack inside the U.S. and they couldn't protect us. So they failed miserably, but still the public rallied around, you know, the leader because sometimes that happens in a time of crisis. Um, but there's other evidence that if, if there's, you know, a market crash, think of George W. Bush uh, towards the end of his term and then Obama versus McCain, the market crashing absolutely helped the Democrat, absolutely helped Obama and absolutely hurt McCain. So it's a little bit of, you know, an up in the air thing. We don't know. Is, is, the, is the crisis so bad that it hurts people so much that they just want change? Or is the crisis so bad that it inspires feelings of patriotism in people so they rally around the leader because we need strong leadership in a time like this? It's tough to tell. It's tough to tell. There's certainly pl plenty of evidence, um, and this is evidence right here, that Biden is a very, very weak candidate, and in fact he could function 
like Hillary 2.0, which is the exact dynamic that we had been predicting for a while. Um, but then there's also a reason to believe that Biden overperformed with all of his weaknesses in the primary. So it's possible that he does the exact same thing in the general. We just don't know. There are too many factors. There are too many variables. And what I see is I think corporate media is overconfident in, in the same way they were overconfident with Hillary. And they think, like, obviously Biden's going to win because Trump is a disaster and they despise Trump. And then you have left Twitter who is convinced that there's no way Biden wins and Trump is guaranteed to win. So you have two totally different mindsets. And uh, honestly, at this point, I think they're both wrong. I used to be totally in agreement with left Twitter, and I was one of the leaders of, of coming out here and saying, I don't think Biden has a chance in hell. But now I'm just agnostic. Now I have no idea. It could go either way, flip a coin. It could go Biden. It could go Trump. Um, but I think both are wrong. I think corporate media is silly in thinking Trump is definitely going down. I think their anti-Trump animus um, really influences their thought process on that. But I think left Twitter is wrong in thinking Biden is going to definitely lose. Because even if you point to like his cognitive decline, which is real, okay, well, he has it and he's getting through the primary. So I see no reason why he couldn't also get through the general. So, and, and just so you know, Biden has historically had to do the least amount, the least amount to, to win of anybody I could think of. I mean, the fact that he literally didn't campaign in many of the Super Tuesday states and he cleaned up on Super Tuesday, that tells you that that default support dynamic is real. And there is, on the Democratic side, a, a, a dynamic of, I'm anti-Trump, give me anything but Trump, and I'll go vote for it, regardless of if I like it, don't like it, whatever. So, you know, if that dynamic holds, then Biden can win despite these red flags. But, again, you're lying to yourself if you think this isn't a red flag. And um, I do believe that Bernie Sanders would have been a much, much, much stronger candidate against Joe, against um, Donald Trump and um I guarantee you that the left is going to be blamed either way. Regardless of what happens, if Biden wins, the left will be completely dismissed and they'll be like, oh, you guys didn't really support him anyway. What the hell do you know? Um, and if Biden loses, they'll immediately say, it's all the left's fault. <laughs> the left can't win. No matter what happens, we're the scapegoat. No matter what happens, they hate us and they come after us and they blame us. So, you know, I would highly recommend not determining what you do and don't do based on what your harshest critics would say, because they're going to come after you no matter what. There is no appeasing these people. So anyway, here's warning number 3,462, that there is still another candidate in the race, and he's way behind. And if we're being honest, it's almost over this thing. But um, you can do your part and vote for that candidate, vote for Bernie Sanders, because yet again, we see the writing on the wall. And the final thing I'll say, final thing, Biden is lagging behind Hillary at this point in the 2016 race in every metric. Every metric. I'm going to repeat that. Biden is lagging behind Hillary at this point in the race in every metric. She had like a, a 7 to 10 point lead, and Biden right now has a 2 to 3 point lead nationally on Trump. I'm getting a, a stockpile of red flags right now. 
and I'm adding another red flag to my stockpile of red flags because there are so many. Again, I don't know what's going to happen. Overall, I'm agnostic on the race, giving everything that's going on. Anybody who, could tell, who tells you they can predict this thing at this point, they have no idea. If the market didn't crash, and if we didn't have the pandemic, I would say 80% chance Trump gets reelected. Um, but now it's 50-50. But, you know, my job is to come out here and present all the evidence to you guys. And the evidence is, honestly, at this point, astounding. Because I certainly don't see Biden shifting that very enthusiastic line. Not happening. No way is he shifting the very enthusiastic line. So it's a virtual guarantee that Trump will have more enthusiasm going into the election. That's for sure. If Biden gets the me support to come out in stronger numbers, he could win. But let's not kid ourselves that this enthusiasm gap is nothing. Like it's a non-issue. It's not. It certainly is an issue. All right, next. A new poll has normie Democrat Biden supporters flipping out and pointing fingers. So let me show you this tweet here. First, pay attention to the smaller ABC News one there. They say new among Democrats and Democratic leaning independents who prefer Bernie Sanders for the nomination. 15 percent say they'd back President Trump over Joe Biden in the fall. And then Ben LaBolt said the following. This is a huge problem and something Bernie Sanders needs to work on every day from now until November. He is responsible for the outcome with this segment of voters and his effort to persuade them to support Joe Biden should start today. Now, first thing I'll say is that 15% number is small. It's small. And especially historically speaking, it's small. When you compare it to other people in the same situation, it's tiny. So I'm going to come back to that and I'll show you the numbers to prove that point. But furthermore, look at this. I told you guys. No matter what happens, they're going to blame Bernie. If Biden wins, Bernie will get none of the credit. Biden loses, Bernie will get all of the blame. And the same thing goes for the left, the left in general. So you can't win. No matter what you do, you can't win. If he wins, you're irrelevant, and don't you dare ask for policy concessions or positions in the administration or certain ideas to be put forward. Shut up, not interested. We won despite you. If, you, if they lose, oh, we lost because of you. So funny how it works. It's always the fault of the left, always. And this guy telling Bernie, like, come on, bro, you own this. I got news for you, Ben. Um, Bernie Sanders is not a cult leader. See, he thinks Bernie is because he's probably, you know, chugged the Kool-Aid of mainstream media propaganda. But Bernie Sanders is not a cult leader. Not everybody is going to follow the, everything he says. In fact, I know a lot of people, myself included, who, honestly, I will not even be able to watch. If we get to the point where he's campaigning for Biden and if Biden's the nominee, which is overwhelmingly likely, he will do that. But if he does that, I won't be able to watch it. I won't be able to take it. It'll be too much of a, a, a repeat of 2016 where 
to some extent I understood it. Okay, you know, he thinks and everybody thinks Hillary's a lesser evil, so he's doing what he has to do. But how everything came about this time, how at the very last minute, all the king's horses and all the king's men had to drop out and prop up Joe Biden. And then that's what led to Joe Biden taking his big lead. Can't swallow that, dog. I can't do it. I can't take the Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar at the last minute selling out, endorsing Biden so that they could get positions in his administration. And that's the only thing that puts Biden over the top is Obama making phone calls at the very last minute. Can't handle it, bro. Because if that didn't happen, Bernie would have went on to win pretty easily. Because all he needed, fractured field, give me a 30% chunk going forward in every state, and I'm good. So at the last minute, they screw him, and Bernie yet again will probably bend the knee. So guess what? People like myself, I know many people who are independents, who are Bernie supporters, who are saying, I'm not voting for Biden in the general. There's nothing Bernie can say or do that will change that. You want to know why? Because these people have their own minds and can evaluate evidence. And they've come to a similar conclusion that I've come to, which is, I can't do it again, bro. I can't do it again. What did I say in 2016? Hey, I'm in New York. I'm in a safe state. I'm going to vote for the Green Party because my vote doesn't matter. But if I was in a swing state, I'd probably suck it up and vote for Hillary because she's lesser of two evils. Guys, we're faced with almost an exact same situation. When I look at Joe Biden's voting record, when I look at the support of NAFTA, when I look at the support of all the various outsourcing deals, which screwed you know, the working class in the Rust Belt, which is vitally important, so much pain that caused. When I look at the Iraq War vote, so much pain. When I look at the Patriot Act, throwing the Constitution out the window. This guy did what's politically convenient in the same way that Hillary did at every step of his career. And I can't do it. I'm not going to vote for a corrupt war criminal. I'm not going to do it. By the way, there's also another uh, you know, descriptor we could add to that, which is sexual assaulter. And I'm being kind just by calling it that and not saying rapist, because depending on what definition you want to use, if there's forced penetration, that's rape. So you know, I'm not going to vote for that. I'm not going to do it. I'm done with the lesser evil game. I'm not interested. I'm just not interested. If you think that Bernie Sanders, who I admire and respect greatly, so he came to a different conclusion than I did, he's, still, uh, he's totally fine playing the lesser evil game yet again. Okay, that's the conclusion he came to. You think he's going to convince me on that? Does it sound like I could be easily convinced based on all of the evidence that I've looked at and all the things that I'm telling you right now, that I'm talking about Biden's record, that I'm talking about the fact that I, I can guarantee you something. I'm going to guarantee you something right now. He's going to pick another centrist, although I don't like calling him centrist. Let's be more accurate. Neoliberal. He's going to pick another neoliberal VP in the same way that Hillary picked Tim Kaine. You know what that is? Nothing but a middle finger to the Democratic base. That's what that is. And you expect me to fall in line and support him. Let me tell you something. Whatever kind of policy concessions he might pretend to give, I don't believe him. I don't believe him. So since I don't believe Biden that he would push for any of the policies I care about, the only thing he could do to earn my support is a unity ticket. Either pick Bernie as your VP, which I know you're not going to do, or you say you want a woman as your VP. Okay, cool. Pick Nina Turner. If you don't pick Nina Turner or Bernie Sanders, I'm not interested. In order to get my vote, you don't own my vote. You have to earn it. So what does that mean? Well, I'm giving you ways to do it. Back in, in 2016, I said, okay, if Hillary makes certain policy concessions, I might do it. She didn't make those policy concessions. But beyond that, she picked Tim Kaine, which is a giant middle finger to the left base. So this time around, I'm telling you up front, any policy concessions, I don't believe Biden. I don't think he's going to fight for Medicare for all, which he said he'd veto. Free college, a living wage, ending the wars, a Green New Deal. He's not going to fight for any of that. 
He's not going to fight for it. He's not going to fight for it at all. So then what's the only other option? I'm being kind here, guys. Some people in my own audience would tell me, no, I think you're being too lenient, Kyle. But I would support if uh, Bernie was VP or Nina Turner was VP. They're not going to do that. So what do you want me to tell you? It's not on me. It's on you. And everybody, because there have been people who reach out to me, come on, man, you can't do that. You got to think about this thing a little more clearly. And they disagree with me on it. Hey, much love and much respect to the people who disagree with me on it. But my question to you is, why are you focusing your attention on me? No, it's not on me. Take all of this energy that you have to try to convince people like me, you fall in line and vote. No, 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 no. Go direct that energy towards Joe Biden and towards his campaign and say, bro, listen, you have to make concessions to them. You have to make concessions to them. You have to do it right now, right now. So again, I wouldn't believe any policy concessions. Maybe some of you would. If Joe Biden came out and made it clear he's going to make you know, legalizing marijuana on day one a priority or something like that. If he could convince you on that front, okay, then by all means, go vote for him. But if I was one of these people who's so obsessed with the left and changing their mind, no, because it's not on us. Go tell Joe Biden, pick Bernie Sanders as Nina Turner for VP. All of this energy, save it and use it for that. Because that's the only way I'm going to cast that vote. So this idea that you could just, Bernie's people are a cult, I'm going to snap my fingers and you're going to fall in line. What are you talking about? We're, We're free thinkers. There are a lot of people who support Bernie who aren't even registered Democrats. I'm a registered Democrat, but only because I live in New York and we have closed primaries. I've said many times, if we didn't have closed primaries, I'd be an independent. I'd be an independent and I'd go vote in the Democratic primary. If we had open primaries, that's exactly what I would do. I'm only a registered Democrat because I have to be in New York to vote in primaries, which is my most important vote. So this idea that you could just tell Bernie Sanders people, hey, fall in line. Hey, Bernie, you own that. Bernie doesn't own that. Bernie is bringing people into the process who otherwise wouldn't have been brought into the process. That's not on Bernie. That's on Biden to try to reach out to those people and get those people in some way. And he's not going to be able to do it. Now, uh, the final thing I want to show you is this. And I hinted at this early on. And now you're about to see it very clearly. Um, So 15% of Bernie supporters would break for Trump. This is an old article. This is from Gallup. They did a poll. If it's McCain versus Obama, 28% of Clinton backers would go for McCain. 28%. Almost double Bernie's number. Almost double Bernie's number. Then it says if McCain versus Clinton, 19% of Obama backers go for McCain. So the former Obama supporters too. The former Obama supporters, if Clinton won the nomination in 2008, 19% of the Obama supporters would have went for McCain. So what does that show you guys? What does that show you? Bernie Sanders' number is low historically. That's the lowest one we have on record compared to the ones that I've seen and the ones I'm showing you here. So it's actually not the case that this is some sort of massive issue overall. I happen to know a lot of the people who fall into that 15% who are going to kind of check out and say, I can't do it. I can't vote for Biden. But really, overall, you're talking about 85% of Bernie supporters who are going to support Joe Biden. So this is all a non-issue. This is all, you know what it is? It is just neoliberal establishment types trying to find anything to yell at Bernie Sanders over, to yell at the left over, 
And isn't it interesting, no matter what happens, we're not viewed as people who need to be wooed, people who need to be, have their concerns taken seriously and supported in order for us to give them support. We're not viewed as that. We're viewed as petulant children who need to shut up and fall in line, and um, we're going to blame you either way. Like I said, if Biden wins, the left will get none of the credit. If uh, Biden loses, the left will get all the blame. The, you know those, those finicky so-called centrists, those so-called swing voters? Those are the ones who they, oh, my God, the, the swing voters, if we don't earn their vote, obviously we did something wrong and we need to reevaluate. How do we get the swing voters? They never look at the left like that, which is interesting because the Republicans always, always, always cater to their base. That's the number one rule of politics, and the Republicans never violate it, which is why Donald Trump has a massively high approval rating with his base. Because they realize, oh, red meat to the base all the time. Got to shore up your base in politics. The Republican political brand is built on shoring up their base, getting their base to love them and support them. Democratic leadership, they do the exact opposite. Their whole identity is built on spitting in the eye of the base. This is why you hear Republican talking points during the Democratic debates nonstop. How are we going to pay for Medicare for all? How are we going to pay for that? I don't even know if we can afford that. Like, this is the kind of stuff they say in the Democratic primary. And then they're surprised when you, when you do have the base of the Democratic Party feeling disillusioned. When you have actual lefties saying, you know what, I can't deal with it. i got to check out. So... What I would say to them, everybody yelling at Bernie Sanders, listen, Bernie Sanders, I have zero doubt. He's going to do exactly what these people want him to do. He's going to go campaign for Biden. He's going to campaign probably harder for Biden than Biden will campaign for Biden, in the same way that Bernie was going to states that Hillary didn't step foot in. He's going to do all that stuff. And um, instead of going after Bernie... These well-meaning neoliberals should really be going after Biden to yell at him to say, bro, you got to do something to try to get the base to have your back. you got to make concessions, whether it's policy, whether it's VP pick, whether it's cabinet picks, whether it's a, a campaign, putting one of their issues front and center, promising and convincing them that you'll fight for it. you got to do something on that front. But notice, they're not doing any of that. They're not going after Biden. They're not asking him to make concessions. They're not treating the left like people to be wooed. They're, uh, it's all shaming and insulting and um, hating on and blaming and scapegoating. And that's not going to stop. So listen, I for one, I agree with what Lawrence O'Donnell said and I think it was the early 2000s. He's like, man, I worked within the Democratic Party. I know the dynamics. I know how it works. The only way... You're going to get politicians to take you seriously is if you can prove to them and show them, I'm totally fine with not voting for you and supporting you. So if the left is organized, if the left is a highly organized block and they withhold their vote, then you're forced to be reckoned with and they have to take your concern seriously. And at this point, it feels like that'll never happen because it seems like they never are interested in what we care about and what we want to fight for. Well, okay. Noted then I'm going to check out and I'm going to withhold my vote and I don't care if you blame me or start taking my concerns seriously. 
because either way, I'm committed to this approach now. And Lawrence O'Donnell is correct, and this is the only way we'll get any change. And at least I could sleep at night and say I tried if it doesn't work. Whereas if you play the lesser evil game from now until the end of forever, then I can't say I did everything that I could to get change because I wouldn't have done that. Okay. Next. Trump's economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, famously said in, I think it was late February, but, but it may have been early March, he said that the coronavirus was contained or nearly contained. And um, now he has to answer for that failure. Mr. Cuddle, I want to I want to talk to there just for a second, including you. It was it was also just a month ago you told CNBC that you thought the virus was contained in the country, even though doctors were warning others. Otherwise, you also downplayed the threat of a long-lasting economic tragedy. You have since said that was based on facts at the time. But yes. why should people trust you this morning with right. your prediction? Look, I'm as good as the facts are. And at the time I made that statement, the facts were contained. The president had just put the travel restrictions on China. And a lot of people agreed with me. In fact, at the time, a lot of people felt that the flu was worse than this uh, virus. No. Fox News thought those things, and Fox News pushed those things out, and they only did it because you guys were saying it first, because Trump was saying stuff like it. That's the reality. He said, oh, I'm only as good at the fact of the, as the facts at the time. Those were never facts. Those were never facts. That was your propaganda. That's what it was. So if you think, wow, this is bad, but... This is a rare thing. I mean, who is this wrong? I mean, this is, this is record-breaking incompetence. That's what this is. And how do you touch that? How do you get near that? I mean, this is like a once-in-a-generation type wrong. You go out there and say, at the beginning of a giant pandemic, you know, we got to contain, bro. Don't worry. It's contained or it's near contained. So, like, don't even worry about it, man. We got it, like Trump was saying at the rally, we got 15 people. We got 15 people, and it'll soon probably be down to, like, close to zero. And then, it just, obviously, you know what happened. Now, forget it. We're talking about literally minimum 100,000, 200,000 deaths. Minimum. 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 Scary stuff. Real scary stuff. But Larry Kudlow is actually wrong to this degree all the time. profile economist in Washington, Cuddles was arguably the most stubborn or delusional. In 1993, he claimed that there is no question that President Clinton's across-the-board tax increases on labor, capital, and energy will throw a wet blanket over the recovery and depress the economy's long-run potential. Not only was his prediction dead wrong, but the economy went into an eight-year expansion and 21 million jobs were created. In 2002, while arguing for the war in Iraq, 
Kudlow wrote, the shock therapy of decisive war will elevate the stock market by a couple thousand points. But instead, the market fell. In July of 2008, he noticed the current economic data. An awful lot of very good new news, which appears to be pointing to a bottom in the housing problem. In fact, maybe the tiniest beginnings of a recovery. In September, the stock market took a nosedive into the abyss, with stocks losing nearly half of their value in the upcoming months. The housing crisis, or Great Recession of 2008, was one of the worst instances of economic devastation since the Great Depression. He's been wrong about everything. He's been wrong about everything. He is a classic, old-school, Reaganomics, supply-sider, believer in the Laffer Curve. And the Laffer Curve is laughable. Like, these guys are wrong about everything. And they don't care to look at economic history and to, and to see that they're incorrect. Um, he's also a giant opponent of the minimum wage and increasing the minimum wage. He's on record about that. And um, I'm telling you, man, you name a big economic event, and there's video out there of Larry Kudlow being wrong about it and being loudly and aggressively wrong about it. And this is a guy that Donald Trump said, yes, I want him as my top economic advisor. So what do you expect to see, guys? I'll tell you what you expect to see. He's recently been on TV. Oh, yes, the market's going up. You know, I sort of think the market will probably never stop going up. That's what I think, bro. It'll probably never stop going up. And, uh, of course, now it's falling off a cliff. Now you could say, hey, there's, you know, extenuating circumstances like the pandemic that are leading to it. Yeah, but it's still real. Like this market crash is still real. And the idea that it's going to bounce back quickly. Well, I got bad news for you. You know who's saying that? The same kind of people like Larry Kudlow, who you just saw was wrong about goddamn everything. So look, we've tried his economic approach time and time again. You know, you look back in the, they called it the roaring 20s. Why was it called the roaring 20s? Because the market was exploding. Oh, my God, everything's so wonderful. Employment's low. Market's exploding. This is great. Good times are never going to end. And then it crashed in 1929 with the Great Depression. So that's when, like, these times throughout history, every time it was cut taxes for the rich, deregulate the market. Cut taxes for the rich, deregulate the market. Ronald Reagan, you know, he was, he was president and the market was booming. As soon as he left office, there was another crash. So this is, I mean, this is the history of it, man. And Bill Clinton signed um, the repeal of Glass-Steagall. I believe it was called the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. And then you had George W. Bush come in, do more deregulation, more tax cuts for the rich. To be fair to Clinton, he didn't cut taxes for the rich. He actually raised the rate a little bit. Um, but you had George W. Bush do more deregulation, more tax cuts for the rich, and we had the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. So when you deregulate those guys on Wall Street, they're not the smartest guys in the room. They're the greediest guys in the room. But that's the mindset in Washington is, oh, they're the smartest guys in the room. You've got to let them just take away the rules, and then they'll fix everything. Really? Because the exact opposite happened. You took away the rules, and they crashed the economy. And, you know, just look at Goldman Sachs as a great example of this, what they did. They were selling these subprime mortgage packages to investors saying, oh, you're going to make a lot of money. It's going to be great. They were rated AAA because they bought the ratings agencies. And then as they were selling them like they're good packages, they would turn around and bet on those same packages to fail. They were committing fraud left and right. 
See, this is what those guys were doing. They were looking out for their own butts. They were trying to make as much money as they possibly could. And damn the consequences. And then when the market crashed, what happened? Everybody rush in, bail out Wall Street, bail out the criminals, except Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers fail, but everybody else, oh, bail them out, bail them out, bail them out, shower tax money on them. And then they went right back to doing the same stuff they were doing. And they went right back to paying the same losers who bankrupted their respective companies. They went back to paying them bonuses. And throughout this whole thing, what was Larry Kudlow doing? Cheerleading it along. First of all, pretending like, you know, voodoo economics, which is what H.W. Bush called it, which is Reaganomics, trickle-down economics, cutting taxes for the rich and deregulation. First of all, acting like that was a great philosophy that was still working and made sense. Cheerleading that while also continuing to be wrong about everything and cheerleading the bailouts. See, that's the thing. These guys aren't even principled free market types because a principled free market type is somebody like Ron Paul, where he says, listen, man, yes, I'm against, you know, universal health care and welfare for people. I don't believe in that. But I also don't believe in corporate welfare and bailouts. A guy like Larry Kudlow is the scum of the earth because he pretends like I'm principled, you know, I'm a principled guy for a free marketplace. But he's only against the welfare for regular people. He's always for the corporate bailouts. So he believes in corporate socialism, also known as corporatism. That's what he believes. He's a corporatist to his core. I'm going to pretend like I have a principled uh, position against government intervention in the market, except for when my buddies start losing all their money, in which case I'm going to say, government, come save us, please. And then immediately start pretending yet again the next day that, uh, you know, hey, we were right with our economic predictions and with our economic models all along. No, you weren't, except maybe the way we really need to start looking at a guy like Larry Kudlow is that he did achieve his goals. And what does that mean? Well, that means maybe Larry Kudlow doesn't care about the crashing economy, doesn't care about the consequences for regular people. He just knows he wants his buddies on Wall Street in suits and ties to become more wealthy. And if that comes in the form of taxpayer bailouts, who cares? Those are his buddies. He talks to them at the yacht club. That's what he does. So I don't know. Is, it, is he just really stupid? Probably. Or is it also nefarious? And they're just trying to loot the treasury as much as possible while they can. That's certainly possible. That's certainly possible. But either way, he has a track record of being wrong about everything. And he's just trying to wiggle out of it when the wrongness comes in the form of a pandemic. We got it under control, guys. Don't even worry about it. It's not even, I mean, come on. It's not even that crazy. It's not even that serious. Like, we got this. We got it. It's nearly contained, bro. Nearly contained, bro. And then this happens. He's like, you know, I'm only, what happened was the sun was in my eyes and I was only really as good as the evidence at the time. There was no evidence saying that. There was no evidence saying that. Fox News was saying that and you were saying that. You probably started it, the Trump administration. Then they ran with it too. So there's no, there were no facts at the time that said that. But this is what he does. He's wrong about everything and then he fails up. <laughs> Seriously, that's what happens with a lot of these guys that go to the nice Ivy League schools and they're born into wealth and it's, they just fail up, fail up throughout their entire lives. Well, now you see what that looks like. And um, unfortunately, there will be no reckoning with everything that I'm telling you guys right now. It's not like this takedown I'm doing of Larry Kudlow, all of a sudden this is going to become the mainstream view of Larry Kudlow. No, he'll continue to influence the most powerful person in the world to make economic decisions. And um, the results of that will not be pretty.
All right, next. So President Trump spoke to Sean Hannity a couple days ago, and um, he said something terrifying that I'm going to play for you here. I don't believe you need 40,000 or 30,000 ventilators. You know, you go into major hospitals sometimes, they'll have two ventilators, and now all of a sudden they're saying, can we order 30,000 ventilators? So, look, it's a very bad situation. We haven't seen anything like it. But the end result is we got to get back to work, and I think we can start by opening up certain parts of the country, you know, Farm Belt, certain parts of the Midwest, other, other places, but... Uh, I think that, uh, as, as an example, you go to Texas, there are places in Texas, great governor, Greg Abbott, there are places in Texas where, you know, it's a tremendously big state that aren't impacted by this. Now, thankfully, and I do mean that, thankfully, he backed out of this idea of restarting the country on Easter because... If he did that, there would be tens of thousands of more deaths that occur, at least, at least. Um, So he extended this, like, current semi-lockdown situation that we're in, he extended it all the way till April 30th, and then they're going to revisit it then. Now, what made him change his mind, I believe it was Dr. Fauci and maybe a couple other people in the administration telling him, Just so you know, we're talking about maybe over a million people could die. Die. Not get just get the virus. No, no, no. Over a million people could die. So there was a light bulb moment for Trump at some point because he was talking to Sean. This was before he was saying all these things. Oh, excuse me. The Sean Hannity clip that you saw here, this is him on Hannity, Trump on Hannity. That clip is from before Trump changed his mind. So somebody got to him since he did this clip and were like, listen, bro, you can't open it on Easter. That's madness. You can't do it. You just can't do it. So that's definitely good that he changed his mind on that. But look at, look at what he's saying there. He says early on, I don't think you need like 30,000 or 40,000 ventilators. Why is he saying that? Because... Governor Cuomo in New York, Trump had sent like 400 ventilators or something to New York. And Cuomo went on Twitter and was like, what am I supposed to do with 400 ventilators? Bro, I need 30,000 of these. Just so you understand, at, in Queens right now, in the city, they're putting dead bodies in refrigerated trucks because the morgues are overflowing and they have nowhere to put the bodies. This is, this is the most serious thing we've ever seen in my lifetime. This is unlike anything I've ever seen. Probably rivaling the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. Like, this is devastating. So you have hospitals all over New York City that are overflowing. We have a massive shortage in ventilators. You know, Nourishelle, my hometown... That was the epicenter of the outbreak in New York. And, you know, these, like the hospitals near me need more ventilators too. The hospitals in my area need more ventilators too. So when he says we need 30,000, what do you think he's saying that for? You think he's joking around, Don? Is that what you think it is? You think Governor Cuomo's just messing around? 
I don't know, I need uh, 30000 No. He, that's, that's the minimum. They're, right now, they're taking the biggest convention center in the city, the Jacob Javits Center, and they're turning it into a hospital. They're building a temporary hospital in Central Park. Do you understand how serious all this is? Now, this is not to say Cuomo shoulders none of the blame. No, because he actually massively cut Medicaid. Massively cut Medicaid. And a lot of big developers shut down hospitals that were previously in the city to put in, you know, luxury condos. So the, the government and the moneyed interest, the state government, the moneyed interest, Andrew Cuomo himself, they shoulder a lot of the blame too. But when you have a president who goes on TV and he's like, you know, I don't think you need that. What, are we making up the pandemic? You think a pandemic's not happening? Is that what you think? And then he, he, in a press conference, Trump went out there and was saying how, you know, it's kind of crazy because you have in New, York, in New York City, you have these nurses and they say we need, you know, X amount more masks. And I'm like, bro, you already had so many masks. What happened? Where'd all the masks go? He's like hinting that there's some sort of conspiracy among nurses in New York City where they're not, they're like hoarding the masks or something. You got people in some of the richest districts in the country, in Manhattan, at a hospital, they don't have the protective equipment. The nurses are wearing garbage bags. And while you think they're making up that they need more masks and they need more protective equipment, what is wrong with you? No, it's amazing how dense this guy is, man. Whatever his opinion is, he just doesn't change it. It's just like, okay, here's what I think. That's it. And then it takes, it literally takes, in the one instance he changed it, which is, okay, let's extend it till April 30th, the semi-lockdown, it literally took a doctor saying, you do know probably over a million people are going to die, correct? And he was like, oh, whoa, whoa. That's a big number. I didn't know that the numbers were going to get that large. So in the press conference the other day, they were bragging that they're going to keep the number down to 100,000 or 200,000 deaths. Bragging that you're going to keep the number... We're going, to try, we're going to make sure that that number's we're going to, it may be 100,000, 200,000. Quite an admission, isn't it? So, um, by the way, I don't. I think it's going to be at least 200,000, probably more. Um, now, just to give you a more specific example or a clear, just to give you evidence as to what the state of the ventilator situation really is. Here's what we need in terms of ventilators. The American government has a stockpile of 16,000 ventilators, the Center for Public Integrity reported Tuesday. The country's medical system has 160,000 ventilators in total. It isn't enough. Already, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says the state needs 30,000 more ventilators for the projected cases in the next two weeks. And the number of cases across the U.S. that require ventilators could reach 960,000 overall. So we only have 160,000 ventilators, and we're going to need about 960,000 ventilators. This is a historic calamity and failure, maybe even surpassing Hurricane Katrina. This is, this is ripping the mask off of the failure and the rot of U.S. empire. We spent $7 trillion in a war with Iraq, $2 trillion in a war in Afghanistan, and we couldn't even have enough ventilators for a pandemic 
which we knew at some point was going to come, this is imperial decline personified. This is like quintessential imperial decline. And this is not just Trump's fault. It is also the fault of the Obama administration, and I'll get into the story on that later because I have details on that. But this is inexcusable. They say, oh my God, we've got to fight all these wars because we've got to protect America. We've got to protect Americans. You're about to have at least 100,000 Americans die because of a pandemic. How many Americans did Al-Qaeda kill? Now, I'm not downplaying that. I'm not belittling that. I'm saying math is math. And we're going to have at least 100,000 people dead because of a pandemic. And you couldn't even stockpile enough ventilators. You didn't have enough personal protective equipment. You didn't have the masks. You didn't have the gowns. Just so you know, in China, they're still wearing hazmat suits as they deal with the virus. Here, nobody's even wearing hazmat suits. They got the regular masks. The N95 masks are as strong as it gets. But we need the hazmat suits here. Why don't we have enough of those? Why don't we have any of those, seemingly? I mean, the people in China dealing with the virus look like they're dealing with Ebola. You know how people look when they deal with Ebola, right? Where they got the all decked out, every inch of their body's covered. It's a hazmat suit. But here, they're not wearing that, which is why, by the way, a lot of doctors are getting sick. I have a friend. I've, I actually tweeted some of the updates from him in the early, you know, in the early unfolding of the pandemic situation. I showed you what he was telling me and how bad it was getting. He got the virus. He got the virus. And he, was, and he never once was around um, a patient without wearing the protective gear. He had the mask. Everything was covered, but it, it's not a hazmat suit. So we got the virus. We are so woefully unprepared. And by the way, we're also just way behind in terms of the timeline. If you really wanted to get ahead of this thing, the second we saw, remember when Trump did the rally and said, oh, we have 15 people who will be down to zero soon. That day where he was downplaying it, he would have needed to order the country on total Wuhan-style lockdown on that day. And in that situation, we could have been, you know, had everything shut down for two months, and then we could have gotten back to normal life. But no, he denied it, denied it, denied it, denied it, denied it, until it was way too late, and then you start ordering semi-lockdowns, and now this thing is going to drag on for God knows how long. But just so you know, our response, and this is not an exaggeration, our response has been the worst in the world. Our trajectory has been the worst in the world. Our cases are growing at a far higher rate than anybody else. Now, you could say, hey, some of those countries aren't testing properly and all that stuff. That's probably true. That's probably true. Let's say I grant you that. We would still be one of the worst in the world, for sure. For sure. So, and some of that you could say is just lack of preparation and not handling it properly. And some of it you could say is cultural stuff. For sure. But that's still no excuse. And here we are. Trump telling governors, I don't, I don't think you need that, bro. How can, how can you say that? That's insane. That's insane. A lot of people are going to die, guys. And they didn't have to die. And, um, God damn it, we better be prepared for the next one. But at this point, I don't know if America can ever learn a lesson. Because we didn't learn any any lessons at all from the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. You would think, oh, come on, they learned. You would think after one of our disastrous illegal wars, we would learn. Nope, 
So what makes us think it'll be any different for a pandemic? What makes us think whoever the next administration is, are they on day one going to order a brand new stockpile of ventilators and a brand new stockpile of masks and a stockpile of hazmat suits? And are they going to do that? Highly doubt it. Doesn't matter who it is. I highly doubt it. We're doomed to repeat history. And yet again, we appear embarrassingly unprepared and stupid. All right, I am going to take a quick break. And when I come back, I will tell you one of the most stunning stories of corruption and incompetence you've ever heard. And it will you'll lose faith in the system, that's for sure, but I think you need to hear the story. So stay right there. We'll be right back with that and much more.
Come back, y'all. I hope everybody's shutdown is going okay. And I hope that, uh, you know, you guys are getting a steady paycheck and can take care of your bills and everything. Because I know it's difficult. It's a difficult time for a lot of people. Um, And you're not alone. It's a lot of people who are really going through this. So I'll get to a story later on the bailout. Um, And, um, yeah, just how disappointing it is that even the better members of Congress are making big mistakes. So anyway, but first let's talk about the ventilators. And um, I highly recommend you hold a stress ball or something during this because it's bad. I'm going to ask you to try not to lose all of your faith in government when you hear this next story because that's certainly the reaction I had. As I was reading this article, actually there's two articles, but, um, you know, you just get that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach and you're like, oh, how could we have let this happen? So first, look at this from Mediaite. The White House cancels GM joint venture to mass produce ventilators over fears its price tag could exceed $1 billion or 0.05% of latest stimulus bill. Now, since this headline, I have good news, which is they flipped and now they will make the ventilators. So that's super important and credit where credit is due. However, way too late, way too late because we're already at the point where we have a ventilator shortage. Where I live in New York, New York City is getting hammered. Queens is getting hammered. They're, they're filling up the dead bodies in a refrigerated truck that they're parking outside of the hospital. That's how bad it is. The morgues have already overflown. You already have people who need ventilators and don't have them. We're at that point already. So for them to just decide now, oh, oh, no, right, yes, uh, the ventilators, the, the National Defense Production Act or whatever it's called, we're going to use that now. See, what happened before is Trump said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invoke the National Defense Protection Act, and then he didn't order anybody to do anything. And everybody's sitting around, even the heads of industry are sitting around like, he, he just invoked the act, but we're not... We're not being told, all right, you guys make ventilators, you guys make masks, you guys make hazmat suits. No, they didn't do any of that. You know, you guys make, uh, you know, uh, chloroquine, you guys make whatever, fill in the blank with antiviral drugs and all that stuff. You guys make this, you guys, they didn't do any of that. So we invoked the act, and then he's like, <laughs> beautiful weather today, right? Yeah, it's beautiful weather. What are you doing? What are you doing? Go, 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 go. So... Turns out, this is what we learned. We learned that Trump and his little economic minions, his merry band of thugs, people like Larry Kudlow um, and Steve Mnuchin, Goldman Sachs lackey, they're sitting around, they're going, oh, look, come on, bro, a billion dollars to make ventilators? That seems pricey to me. I think we're going to shut this whole thing down. They They just passed 
a two trillion dollar actually it's not even two trillion it's really six trillion walls or excuse me no four point five trillion they just passed a four point five trillion dollar bailout bill and they look at a one billion dollar bill for ventilators and they're like that's too expensive so this is like to a tragic and comedic degree what we tell you guys all the time which is whenever the price tag is for you in any way shape or form medicare medicaid anti-poverty programs social security whenever it's programs for you like i don't know i think we need to pinch our pennies but when it's for war or when it's for corporate bailouts it's just make it rain it doesn't matter spend as much as you want money's not an issue money isn't even real We'll just move the decimal point over at the Federal Reserve and it's over. It's fine. No big deal. We just made, we just printed it. Who cares? Money printer go brrrr. That's it. But again, because of them dragging their feet, people are going to die. So congratulations on that. But I haven't even gotten to the worst part. Now you're probably going, what? It gets worse than that? Oh, it gets worse than that. So the New York Times also broke this incredible news that around 2008, the CDC made a deal with a small medical device company called Newport Medical Instruments. And the whole point of this was for an exact situation like we're in right now. So I believe swine flu hit in 2009, but you did have the health experts doing their job and saying, listen, we're on borrowed time for a pandemic. Like, we're going to get hit with another pandemic, and, you know, we're overdue for a bad one. I mean, look at the 1918 Spanish flu. Millions of people dead. So we're going to get hit with a bad pandemic. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. So we need to have a stockpile of the necessary supplies, including ventilators. So the government was, you know, they, they had a contract. They were ready to go. Again, they, picked, they had picked a small company, I believe it's a Japanese company that was headquartered in California called Newport Medical Instruments. And what they were supposed to do is make a smaller, cheaper, easier to use ventilators. Ventilator, because um, ventilators are you know, a little bit uh, complicated to use and they're on the bigger side. So the government wanted to prepare for an exact situation like we have right now with COVID-19, where they have smaller, cheaper, easier to use ventilators. And, you know, they doled out the millions of dollars, did the contract. So what happened? Well, they made their prototypes, and they showed the government. Government's like, ooh, yeah, I like that. That, that. That's good. It's working good. It's nice. As soon as they were about to mass produce them, as soon as they were about to mass produce them, a big company, medical device company called Covidian, swept in, bought up Newport Medical Instruments, the company that was supposed to mass produce these smaller, cheaper, easier to use ventilators. And then they canceled the federal contract. So the government goes through all this trouble, contracts with a small company, starts to, wants to make the ventilators, pick the prototype. As soon as they're about to start making them, a bigger company buys out the smaller company and cancels the federal contract, which further delays the U.S. getting the ventilators that we desperately need. Now, you might be thinking, well, first of all, I didn't know they could do that. A bigger company could just buy it and then shut the whole thing down. Apparently, yes, they can. 
But why did they do it? Why did they do it? You ready for this? That bigger company is one of the companies that makes the older, bigger, more expensive ventilators. So they bought their competition to shut the whole thing down because they wanted to keep making profits selling the shittier ventilators. And here we are today. We do not have a giant stockpile of ventilators. We have some, but not nearly enough. We have 160,000 total in the country, and we need 960,000. And we would have had maybe 100,000 more, or maybe a little less, if it wasn't for Covidian, the medical device company, buying up the smaller company and shutting down the whole process. So this is an important story. And it has many lessons embedded in it. I mean, one of the lessons is monopolies are bad. Monopolies are bad. Another problem is corporatism is a stain on the nation. So here we are. Here we are. A bigger company ruined the whole thing. The government going along, apparently, I think the government had to approve Covidian buying out the smaller company. So the government is also to, to blame. I'm sure there's corruption involved. There's definitely corporatism involved. There's definitely monopoly power involved. But as a result of all of these problems, here we are. A giant lack of ventilators during a pandemic. A lack of tests as well. A lack of protective equipment as well. We are quite literally handling this worse than any other developed country in the world. And our trajectory shows it. We, are, we already have more cases than anybody in the world. New York City is now the epicenter of the pandemic. I would say it's time for a revolution, but we have so many distractions that there will never be a revolution. <laughs> And who really wants to get out there and, you know, put their life on the line? And, by the way, nobody would ever beat the government So in, in a physical, you know, in a violent encounter. But it certainly is time to throw on those yellow vests and get out in the street. But um, as of right now, we can't do that because we might all die from the pandemic. So caught between a rock and a hard place and um, incredibly frustrated and furious as to what led us to this point. But we need to make some big changes because we can't keep living like this. Honestly, it's not just disgusting, it's also embarrassing that this is what we're doing and this is what the negative consequences will cost people's lives and also you have other countries looking at us and it's embarrassing. Look how South Korea is handling this outbreak. Look at this. Look at the chain testing that happens in a lot of these places. I mean, a lot of them were prepared because they've had previous outbreaks, so they already had the processes in place. But to me, in the year 2020, there's no excuse. You should have been ready for a pandemic. We're not even close to ready. We're not even 20% ready for it. And as a result, people will die, and blood is on the hands of all of these institutions which have failed us.
All right, next. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez gave a speech against the corona bailout bill, the stimulus bill. Let's watch. Thank you, Mr. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker, and, and thank you to our um, majority leader. I represent one of the hardest-hit communities in the hardest-hit city in this country, Queens, New York, 13 dead in a night in Elmhurst Hospital alone. Our community's reality is this country's future if we don't do anything. Hospital workers do not have protective equipment. We don't have the necessary ventilators, and, but we have to go into this vote eyes wide open. What did the Senate majority fight for? One of the largest corporate bailouts with as few strings as possible in American history. Shameful, the greed of that fight is wrong for crumbs, for our families. And the option that we have is to either let them suffer with nothing or to allow this greed and billions of dollars, which will be leveraged into trillions of dollars, to contribute to the largest income inequality gap in our future. There should be shame about what was fought for in this bill and the choices that we have to make. Gentlelady's time's expired. And I yield. That was a good speech, but she went on to vote for the bill. I don't think there was a single progressive that we got to vote against it. There were a couple conservatives. There were, uh, you know, the the more libertarian, Tea Party-like conservatives, Thomas Massey. One of the things that happened was, uh, I think his name is Thomas Massey, Representative Massey, um, wanted to get everybody on the record said, okay, we're going to have the vote in the House. We're going to do it the right way. I want to see everybody on record. I want to see everybody on record. Instead, they didn't do that, and they all went after him. Trump went after him. All, everybody went after him in Congress. They were like, how dare you? How could you? You're going to put all of our lives at risk because of coronavirus. And he's like, first of all, regular people have to go to the grocery store. Nurses and doctors have to go to work. Got many essential workers who are doing their thing. I believe that what we're doing is essential. Okay, and also, let's not be weaselly and try to wiggle out of historical responsibility for your actions and for your vote. Okay, because I got news for everybody watching this right now. This vote is definitely going to go down in history in a similar way to the Patriot Act, a similar way to TARP. This is how this vote is going to go down. This vote is going to be looked at as shameful. Now, I understand the conundrum that AOC and Bernie Sanders and everybody faced. Because, you know, it's a deal with the devil. They say, oh, working families need the relief. Regular people need the relief. They need it. There's There's no two ways about it. They need it. They need it. They need it. People can't pay rent on April 1st. This is a national nightmare. You have to get the unemployment out there. You have to get more money to the hospitals. It was in this bill, $150 billion. Um, you know, you have to give people their, what we hoped was going to be a UBI, but it's really a one-time payment of $1,200. But either way, people need it. You have to get it out there. You have to get it out there. You have to get it out there. But 
what if I told you that along with all that, we're just going to happen to marry the biggest corporate bailout of all time with like no strings attached, where the Treasury Secretary and Donald Trump are the ones who make the decision as to which industries get bailed out and don't get bailed out. And there's like next to no oversight. And oversight that's just going to be ignored. We'll get to a story on that later. Trump literally was saying, yeah, I'm just going to ignore the oversight. So you just gave effectively $4.5 trillion to giant corporations with no strings attached, no accountability, very few rules. The, oh, you can't fire people rules. First of all, they could fire 10% of their workforce anytime they want. Second of all, that expires very soon. It's like six months. Within six months, they could just mass layoffs. So you just let corporate America loot the treasury to give crumbs to working people. I know it's hard. I know that it, in the moment, you're going to take fire for it, but you had to vote against this bill. And I think the thing that's so upsetting about this AOC thing in particular is that she knew what was going on. She saw the dynamic, and she still chose to vote the wrong way. Bernie Sanders knew what was going on, and he chose to vote the wrong way. Now, again, don't get me wrong, because yes, did they make the, the bill better? Well, yes, Bernie Sanders' amendment, he got up people that make up to $75,000, he got them 100% of their paycheck in unemployment. So they massively expanded unemployment. Good, good, good. But what should they actually have done? Because I know a lot of you are watching right now saying, Kyle, come on, they did the best they could. What do you want them to do? What I wanted them to do is, the second it became clear what the terms of the bill were going to be, I needed all the progressive caucus people in the House, or at least the ones who were really progressive, you know, the Justice Democrats, for example, Ilhan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ro Khanna, Pramila Jayapal, Raul Grahava, like all these people, get them all together, say, listen, number one, we can't have this. Also, in the Senate, you need Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, maybe Sherrod Brown, some of the people who are on the left to some extent, get them all together and say, listen, we need a full court press, we need to go all in. In the case of the Senate, they could say, I'm going to block this bill unless you, you have to split it in two. You have to split it in two. That would, have been, that would have been my move. And I would have absolutely done as many interviews as I could possibly do, get the word out as much as possible, and just say, we have to split this bill in two, have a bailout of the people first, and then we'll get to the terms of the corporate bailout. But we have to first vote on a clean bill for a bailout of the people. We have to first vote on a clean bill of a bailout of the people. That's the, what you do. Now, why didn't they do that? Because it's hard to organize. It's hard to organize, especially when you know leadership is going to say, listen, if you do this, you're done skis, bro. You think I want to do any favor for you in any way, shape, or form if you do this? Because that's what Nancy Pelosi would say. That's what Chuck Schumer would say. They would look at AOC and Ilhan Omar and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and all of them with disdain. But you know what, guys? And I hope one of them is watching it right now. They're always going to look at you that way. So you might as well show actual leadership and courage. They're going to hate you no matter what you do. 
just so you understand. They might pretend every now and then to respect you or get along with you or be nice to you. They don't like you. They never will. So why not show some actual leadership and courage and organization? It's not hard to make the case that she just made. She just said, what are we talking about here? This is a $4.5 trillion bailout of corporate America, which is really just a heist. And this is Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine, namely exploit a tragedy to do what they wanted to do beforehand, which is just total corporate socialism, which is just no matter what, we bail out the wealthy people in the country and the 1% of the corporations. You can make that case. It's not that hard to make that case. So if you guys go out there, there, I guarantee you the press would try to spin it. Oh, my God, they're holding up the much-needed you know, relief for working families. You can control the narrative if you're organized and if you're aggressive. And if you go out there and you say very clearly, we are for the bailout of the people. They are not for the bailout of the people. Because really what they want to do is totally change our economy and rig our economy and do corporate socialism from now until the end of time and give all the money and lo- let – The rich loot the treasury, and we are the only people who are actually fighting for regular Americans. You can make that case. You can control the narrative. It just requires actual leadership and organization. And they certainly didn't organize, and they certainly didn't show leadership and courage. You know who, funny enough, did show courage? Thomas Massey. Now, again, I don't agree with him on almost that. Well, on very few things I agree with him. He's a libertarian. He's like a hardcore libertarian, so maybe him and I would agree on some social issues and stuff, but and on he's against corporate bailouts. He's against like all welfare for regular people. I disagree with him on that, but he's against corporate welfare too. And so he stuck his neck out there, and he was like, yeah, I want everybody to at least get on the record, and you got to vote. And he took fire from everybody. The president was tweeting about it. But that's courage, and that's leadership. But he was the only one. Usually, in a situation like this, you see a weird alliance of like Tea Party-like conservatives and the progressive left. And on this one, the progressive left was nowhere to be seen. You had Ilhan Omar, you had AOC, you had Bernie Sanders, you had all of them talking about, oh, this is $500 billion of corporate welfare. It's not. It's $4.5 trillion because they could add more to it. And it's up to, the, you know, it's up to Steve Mnuchin, which is disastrous because he's a Goldman Sachs fraud. And he's going to determine who gets the bailout, who gets the money, and why. It's insanity. But they spoke about how they knew how wrong it is, but ultimately they voted for the bill. This is going to be a stain on all of their records. It is. And again, I know that, you know, if they're watching this, they're going to say, what do you know, Kyle? It's, it's easy to talk about this from your comfy studio uh, and where, when your neck and your reputation and and your career isn't on the line. And again, my response to them is very simple. I hear you. It's hard. It's not easy. You're going to take shots. You're going to take fire, not only from Democratic leadership, who are going to make you pay for it, but also from the media, who at first would, you know, talk about you guys as if you're the bad guys. But, but sometimes, sometimes, stick your neck out there, history views you as the hero. At the time when Barbara Lee was voting against our wars, she was one of the only ones. And people were like, unpatriotic. They threw everything at her. But she did the right thing. She did the right thing. And she probably knew that in the long run she would be vindicated. But the left 
did not organize. They did not lead. They did not show courage. They just kind of casually went along and tried to make the terms of the bill less terrible. I've got to be honest with you guys. I'm sick and tired of a left that always has to compromise away our values. I'm really not interested in that kind of left anymore. I'm not interested in that at all. I'm interested in a tough, loud, aggressive, no-nonsense left that sets the terms of the debate on our grounds and on our terms. That's what I want. Now, we could have had that, but yet again, they didn't organize. They didn't stick their neck out there. They didn't show leadership. No matter what they say, they could have done that. It would have been hard. The media would have came after them. Democratic leadership would have came after them. Who cares? Who cares? Because, again, history will judge you kindly. As opposed to now, history is going to judge you just like the rest of them. That's it. History is going to say, oh, you might talk a good game from time to time, but you just showed you're a standard politician. And a story just came out right before I came on air today. I saw, and Jenk Uger was talking about it, new story in Politico. Uh, it's about how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has some disagreements with Bernie Sanders in terms of strategy where she's, uh, she wants to be less of an insurgent outsider and more of an insider. And she doesn't want to like, support as many people who are, you know, who are like she was. She wants to find a way to make the change from within and not stick her neck out as much anymore and try to be an effective technocrat. Well, yet again, what I have to say to her is Nancy Pelosi and Democratic leadership, they don't like you. They're never going to like you. They're never going to respect you. And if you think that, you know, if you do for them that they will eventually do for you, all they do is placate the left and give you a little pat on the head. That's it. Little pat on the head. Good girl, Nancy Pelosi would say. It's a very difficult thing to, you know, start an insurgent outsider organization and then make sure everybody stays true to those values every step of the way. When we co-founded Justice Democrats, the idea is, no, we are outsiders, and these are the things we're going to fight for. But it's tough for anybody once they actually, if they win and get to Congress, all of a sudden you feel like, you know, the loser kid in high school who's left out. And you're like, I'm a human being. I want to get along with people. So it's easy to casually find a way slowly over time to tiptoe into that world of standard politics. But when that happens, everybody, to some extent, other people more than others, they lose their core message. They lose their values. They lose what it was all about to begin with. This is why I've always been a strong advocate of the left not only needs to engage in this civil war on the de- in the Democratic Party, we have to acknowledge it's actually happening. But like at least half of my fellow lefties, they don't want to do that. They don't want to say, hey, we have a Democratic civil war and I, I, I'm going to fight for my side in that civil war. They want to play the BS unity game as if there is a way to bridge the gap between the likes of a real lefty and Nancy Pelosi. There is no way to bridge that gap. There is no way to square that circle. There is no way 
to get her to get our agenda through. It's not going to happen. She simply doesn't agree with us. She's a neoliberal corporatist. That's what she is. That's it. She'll give you, okay, you want me to agree with you on gay marriage and, you know, and abortion? Gotcha. There. But, okay, what about all the economic stuff? Eh. My donors don't want me to agree with the left on that, so I'm not going to do it. They don't agree with us. So when you talk about unity and you want to get along and you want to be an insider and you want to try to impact change that way, she is more of a tech, Nancy Pelosi does more, does technocracy better than anybody on the left. And she will outmaneuver the left. And she's also in a leadership position, so she has more power. So the only way to overcome in this democratic civil war is to acknowledge we have a battle going on here and overwhelm them. That's the only way, which means we need these outsiders to go in and remain outsiders and stay true to the mission and take no crap. And you're not going to break me. You're not going to make me fall in line. Not only am I not going to vote for your shitty corporate bailout bill, I'm going to call it out every single day and I'm going to set the terms in the debate and the discussion. But again, what does this require? It requires organization on the left. And it requires leadership and courage and the willingness to be hated by mainstream media and by Democratic leadership. And as much as I love Bernie, as much as I love AOC, they don't have that in them. And that's obvious now. You don't have it in you to be hated by Democratic leadership and to be hated by the media for the bigger purpose. And that's a shame. So... You know, I know how you guys feel out there. If you're on the left, you feel like, really? All this time, all this effort, and we got zero lefties to do the right thing on this corporate bailout bill? Yeah. That's what happened. So a lot, of, a lot more people need to get a lot more involved, um, need to run for office, need to win, and need to stay true to the original mission. Apparently, there's something about Washington that it just changes the overwhelming majority of people. And um, over time, they forget why they originally went. And they'll rationalize it, and they'll tell themselves it was what we had to do for reasons X, Y, and Z. But at the end of the day, that's all it is. It's a rationalization. And it's massively depressing. It looks like the few strings attached to the coronavirus bailout bill are just window dressing. President Donald Trump used a relatively rare signing statement Friday to object to portions of the $2 trillion coronavirus stimulus law, potentially opening a new front for Democrats on the oversight of how that money is spent. Trump said he would ignore portions of the law demanded by some Democrats to give Congress additional visibility into the stimulus spending, arguing that those requirements would infringe on the separation of powers enshrined in the Constitution. This is just too perfect. It's too perfect. So they do this terrible corona bailout bill. Um, Some of the bill, it's crumbs for working people in this difficult time. Um, They should have given a lot more to regular people. They didn't. They should have separated the regular bill 
for the people from the corporate bailout. They didn't. By the way, that's the only way you could get the corporate bailout bill passed, is to put the stuff in there that's like basically the crumbs to regular people so that, you know, they have to accept it in a way. You make it so that if you try to pass that corporate bailout bill on its own, oh, my God. Talk about a mask-off moment for Washington. Like, oh, my God, they're all incredibly corrupt. So Nancy Pelosi held up the bill originally and was like, no, we got to you know, work on the terms of this. This is too much of a giveaway to corporate America. And what they did is a lot of the similar language that went into the 2008 bailout, and it's about oversight. So up front, what I was saying and what many other people were saying is, this is just window dressing. This is just kabuki theater. They're saying, oh, it's like when you bring in the CEO of a big bank, and then Elizabeth Warren or somebody rails against them and holds their feet to the fire. What are the actual consequences of that? There are none. That's all a show. You, Mr. Banker, you're so bad. These bad things you did are bad. Oh, yes, I was so bad. And then they leave, and they're just as rich as they were when they walked in, and they just broke as many laws as they did when they walked in, and there's no actual punishment for it. So they did the window dressing. They did the, we're going to have oversight committees. Wow, so strong. And then Trump even goes that step further, and he's like, that's cute. Um, We're going to ignore the portions of the law that we don't like. So all that oversight, the minimal oversight that there is, we're just going to ignore that. Congratulations to all the people, all the Democrats who voted for this bill, um, you know, not realizing that this is like the Patriot Act again or this is like the Wall Street bailout in 2008, not realizing how history will judge this. What did you think would happen? Seriously, what did you think would happen? You thought that the future, in the future they'll judge this vote kindly? This is the biggest corporate coup and corporate heist I've ever seen in my life. This surpasses the 2008 bailout. You got five, $4.5 trillion that Steve Mnuchin determines, former Goldman Sachs guy determines, Treasury Secretary, oh, who, who are we going to give money to? Why are we going to give money to them? I'll tell you what, it's the companies that have the slickest lobbyists. Those are the ones who are going to get the money because this is all just a grab bag of corruption. This is all corporate America looting the treasury in a time of crisis. This is exactly like Naomi Klein's shock doctrine. Oh, look, there's a disaster. Let's use that to exploit our, you know, our pre-existing ideology. Let's implement our pre-existing ideology. What's their ideology? Rank corporatism, corporate socialism. Give the rich, every, give the 1% everything, give the corporations everything. They can't go bankrupt. They can't fail. And give the workers crumbs. And that's what they did. There are no strings attached for them. All the rules are so lax. But for you, oh, my God, you get $1,200. You're only going to get it if you filed in 2018 or 2019 your taxes. Um, and there are other terms and conditions as well. Like, you needed to give them your direct deposit information. If you hadn't given the IRS your direct deposit information, then it'll take even longer for the check to get to you. Um, And it's means-tested. It's not for the whole country. And it's a one-time payment. It's not a continuous payment throughout uh, the entire crisis. This is embarrassing stuff, guys. It really is. And uh, the Democrats thought this is the best bill they could get. Are you kidding me? I would have tried to lead the charge of splitting the bill up. Have the bailout of the people and then get to the terms of the bailout of the corporations. And, um, of course, I would have voted for the bill that's the bailout of the people and not voted for the bailout of the corporations. 
but at least you get people on record and at least you give people the help that they need without jamming down their throats more income and wealth inequality and more corporatism. So congratulations, Democrats. Now, I would say, oh, they got outmaneuvered here. But the reality is, no, Nancy Pelosi is totally fine with this. She's fine with it. If you think she's against it, you just don't know her well enough. She is also a corporatist. She agrees with Trump on so much of his agenda. All the stuff that she does that's like anti-Trump is a show. It's like, remember when she ripped up the, the speech? Or, and, or the handshake thing where she gave the look? And people were like, ugh. Slay, queen, slay with your resistance. Oh, yes, resist. And then at the same time, she's supporting increased NSA spying powers for Trump. That's one of the things that they did. Giving him a blank check for a bailout of corporate America during a time of crisis. This is not actual resistance. It's token resistance. It's a show. It's kabuki theater. That's what it is. And she's fine with the terms of this bailout because she's also bought by the same donors bought by Big Pharma, bought by the for-profit health insurance companies, bought by Wall Street and the financial institutions, bought by the military-industrial complex. Guys, the freaking cruise line industry is going to get bailed out. I didn't know this about the cruise line industry, but get this. They don't register in the U.S. to pay taxes. They register in tax havens to pay taxes. So they don't register here. They register elsewhere to dodge taxes. They also use labor from other countries and basically have them as indentured servants. They pay them total crap. So look at this. Look at this. this whole industry dodges all U.S. taxes, basically has indentured servants, and Congress rushed in to bail them out. It's the cruise ship industry. If there was ever an industry that actually shouldn't be bailed out, it's something like the cruise line industry. Or at least have terms. Sorry, you've got to register here now and pay taxes. Sorry, you've got to hire people here and pay them a living wage. At least have terms. I would have done, if anything, temporary, temporary nationalization. But no, they're talking about bailing them out, no strings attached, and if you don't like it, tough cookies. Our government is totally captured by corporate interests. Totally captured. And it's embarrassing. And even the politicians who are supposed to, you know, resist, it's all professional wrestling. Trump plays the heel. Pelosi uh, plays the baby face, and, uh, but ultimately, they just, behind the scenes, they're friends and they get along and they high-five and it's whatever, because really they agree on, on the bigger issue here. Crumbs for people, loot the treasury if you're part of the 1%. That's what's happening. And even the very, very lax rules and, and oversight, gone. It's not going to be there. Congratulations to everybody who supported this. Okay, now we're going to get to some fun religious stuff. There's an end times broadcaster and pastor. His name's Irvin Baxter, and he appeared on uh, the one and only Jim Baker show. Now, Jim Baker is a fundamentalist Christian who is a criminal. He's been to prison before. Um, And he was just recently selling uh, his own little silver remedy that he says kills every known pathogen and it would kill the coronavirus. Um, 
Well, this guy, Irvin Baxter, unveiled a new scapegoat for the COVID-19 pandemic. This is hilarious. I was thinking as I was putting all this together in my mind about the thing of fornication. I thought about the term fornication. I did a little research. There are 7.5 million unmarried couples living together in the United States. This is not worldwide, just in America. 7.5 million couples. That means 15 million people that are living together unmarried. And that's increased over the last 10 years by 138%. Now, in addition to that, I, I hope this research is not correct, but I got it straight from the encyclopedia. It says that 5% of new brides in America now are virgins. That means 95% have already committed fornication. Now, God says, oh, do not be deceived. God's not mocked. No fornicator, no adulterer, nor effeminate, nor abuser of themselves of mankind, nor extortioner, nor drunkard. None of these shall inherit the kingdom of God. If we think we can just ignore God and live a sinful lifestyle, well, we cannot do it. And, you know, I believe what you're saying, that God may be using this as a wake-up call. This coronavirus may be a privilege. Because I'll tell you right now, there's a much bigger judgment coming. It's in the Bible. The coronavirus might be a privilege? Okay, so this is just great. I love this stuff. He can't just say, fornication is bad. Stop having sex and stuff. He can't say that. Because people would be like, what? Shut up. Nobody's going to agree with that. People, generally, like sex. I mean, maybe you have a small percentage of asexual people, but people, generally speaking, like sex. So it's a super unpopular position to just be like, fornication's bad. That's not strong enough for people. So what does he have to do? He has to try to connect it to death. Like, oh, yeah, well, we got this pandemic, this virus, which is killing people and making people super sick. So maybe that's because of, there are fornicators out there. I mean, this is the equivalent of, they used to, you know, it's the old, um, I don't know if it was a joke or what they actually told people back in the day, but, oh, if you touch yourself, if you jack off, you'll go blind. That's a thing that used to be said to kids to try to get them to not do that, you know, when they're entering sexual maturity. Oh, you can't do that. It leads to, leads to people becoming blind. That's what this is. Oh, uh, yeah, you're having sex and liking it? Well, you're making people get coronavirus. <laughs> what? So the other thing is notice how it's always the fault of whatever fits their already held ideology. And we saw this during hurricanes. Remember uh, Pat Robertson and people like that blaming uh, abortion and, and gay pride parades and stuff like that? This is what they do. They have their pet issues, and they just try to square peg, round hole every situation. They say, see, I was right all along. Hurricane hits and hit where there are a lot of gay people. Blame the gays. It's just so childish. Um, but I think probably the most important point is, if, if that's what God was doing, 
punishing people for fornication, and that's why he gave everybody the coronavirus, why wouldn't he only infect the fornicators? Just so you know, the people who are mostly dying, now there are young people who are dying, to be clear. It, it, it is happening. But most of the people who are dying are, most of the people who are dying are, look at what's happening in Italy. It's like older married couples. Families who stay together in New Jersey, there's been a bunch of cases because you have all these like Italian families where they all live together. You have, you know, the grandma and grandpa on one floor and then, you know, the two kids on another floor and then the even younger generation on the bottom floor and they're all together and this is how it's spreading. You have somebody who's young who has it, doesn't realize they have it and they spread it to the parents and then they die or the grandparents and they die. So you have, funny enough, older married couples, people who quite literally believe in family values because they live with their families their entire lives. These are the people who are most impacted by this. So it's not, you know, the young fornicators or whatever who are getting obliterated by this. It's like these old married couples. Come on, man. It's just, it's so sad that you're just exploiting this for your own personal gain. But the upside is nobody believes this. Nobody watches this and is like, yeah, I think he nailed it. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Actually, I probably am wrong because, what, there's 20, 25% of the country is hardcore evangelical Christian. So maybe some of those people are on board with this. But really, even people who are super religious, you don't watch this and go, huh, I don't know, that doesn't sound quite right to me. Fornication led to the, <laughs> to the coronavirus. Silly me. I thought it was, uh, you know, a disease that went from a bat to like a pig to a human. That's what I thought. I thought that the pandemic started like most other pandemics, which is it goes somehow jumps from animals to humans. I mean, that's what happened with mad cow. That's what is happening with coronavirus. That's, um, you know, what happened with swine flu, H1N1. Pretty sure that's it. And if you want to take on anything as your pet cause, go after the wet markets in China where they have all these varieties, all these exotic animals that people are eating. You can go after that. You can go after factory farming in the West, which, again, has very unsanitary conditions and can lead to the easy spread of disease. If you actually were concerned with fixing the issue, there's a conversation to be had there. But he's not really concerned about it. He's concerned about spreading his ideology and pushing fundamentalist Christianity. But I've got bad news for you. Pretty sure this argument you're making is not going to invite too many people <laughs> into the club. Pretty sure most people are going to say, oh, what are you guys on board with? Oh, sex is bad is one of your selling points? I think I'll pass. All right, now I got more fundamentalists. I told you, very old-schoolish, secular talk show today. Rick Wiles is the somewhat well-known fundamentalist Christian who still has a TV show. I don't know how, given so many of the things that he said. Um, he's got a TV and radio show. And he discussed the pandemic that we're experiencing. And you'll never guess who he decided to blame. This is a report from Israel that the synagogues are the, the top spreaders 
of the coronavirus in Israel. That's that's not an anti-Israel report. That's in the Times of Israel. They're admitting. They are admitting that the virus clusters are in the synagogues. If you go, in fact, I'll show you the next one from UPI. Chief rabbis urge Israelis to stay away from synagogues. Well, I would too. Stay out of those things. There's a plague in them. God's dealing with false religions. God's dealing with people who oppose his son, Jesus Christ. He's, he's dealing with the forces of Antichrist. Oh, boy. And there's a plague moving upon the earth right now. And the people that are going into the synagogues are coming out of the synagogues with the virus. Well, it's spreading in Israel through the synagogues. Who is Israel going to blame that on? There are no anti-Semitic people going there with the virus spreading it. Now, let me tell you, Mr. Netanyahu, let me tell you, ADL, God, God is spreading it in your synagogues. You're under judgment because you oppose his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why you have a plague in your synagogues. Repent. Repent and believe on the name of Jesus Christ, and the plague will stop. Imagine believing that repenting would change anything. Like, seriously, think about that. Somebody's got the coronavirus, they're having trouble breathing, they got that dry cough going, they got a fever, and they go, I now accept the Lord, my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ into my life. And then it's like, you get like the angel music, and then they're just healed. My cough is gone, my fever's gone, oh my God, it worked. First of all, if that was the case, like, I, everybody with coronavirus would be like, yeah, sure, I accept Jesus. And then they'd be, oh, look, I'm fixed. Oh, isn't that great? Wow. Clearly, I mean, obviously, I shouldn't even have to say this, but it's not going to change Dickie McGeezak. If you decide to repent and accept Jesus, and I don't, I actually don't doubt his sincerity. I think this guy is just totally... He's just on Neptune. He's out there. He's just insane. So I don't doubt that he believes that. But imagine really believing that. Then, you know, effectively faith healing would be true. But it's not. You can't just, you know, wish away or pray away ailments. Also, if he was right that, hey, this is all you got to do, and then you're better. So all the Jews who went to the synagogues and now you came out and you got the virus, just repent. God is spreading the virus. If you repent, it'll go away. By that logic, then wouldn't Christians already be immune under your theory? So no Christians would have the coronavirus. If what you're saying is true, no Christians would have the coronavirus. But, of course, they do. And, in fact, there was a pretty prominent story about how South Korea largely got coronavirus under control, but there was one dude who had it and then went to church, and he helped spread it in the church, and then it spread to thousands of people. Now, thankfully, South Korea is still handling it so well. Everybody's wearing masks. So many people are getting tested. Um, So they got it way more under control than we do. But they basically had it locked down, and one person kept spreading it because he went to church. And if Rick Wiles was right, none of them could get the virus, but they did. Um, 
I guess the final point I'll make, which I never understand why these people don't get it, is if God really wanted to punish people, as Rick Wiles is saying he's doing here, oh, he's punishing false religions. That's what he's saying. Why would he do it in this way with an obscure virus where, like, you know, 80% of the people who get it don't need hospitalization, 20% do need hospitalization, and about 1% to 3% die, depending on a whole bunch of factors and age and availability of care and all that stuff. So that number is subject to change. It's 9% in Italy because there's an older population. It's less than 1% in South Korea. But if God wanted to punish people, why wouldn't he just, you know, at the snap of a finger, punish people? Like the idea that he spreads it like, okay, I'm going to go to a wet market in China. And I'm going to make sure it comes from bats. And I'm going to have it spread over an extended period of time. And like, it's so convoluted. Presumably God could just, because he's God, God could do anything, right? God could just say to all these people, I just want you to know right now, I will punish you if you don't do X, Y, and Z. He could do that. He's God. He's God. And if he wants to punish, okay, boom, I could just take you out of existence immediately. So I don't, the amount of brainwashing and disconnect from reality that goes into being somebody like Rick Wiles is monumental. And is there a single thing that Rick Wiles hasn't blamed on the Jews? <laughs> Every show is Jews this, Jews that, Jews, Jews, Jews. He just, he can't help himself. He just go after, goes after Jews nonstop. He blames them for everything. He's like an old school anti-Semite. Like, he's one of those anti-Semites. He literally said there, I don't know if you caught it in his rant, but he's like, hey, who's spreading the disease? It wasn't any anti-Semitic people who were spreading the disease. So that's him saying, like, what are you going to do? You can't blame the anti-Semites. See, the anti-Semites, they're the clean ones. It's the Jews who are dirty. Like, this is who he is. He can't help himself. He's like an old-school anti-Semite. He's a... I have no idea how he still has a show. <laughs> I really don't. Of all the things he said over time. And by the way, for a while, his somebody from his True News, which is what he calls a show, um, company, they were getting press credentials at the White House. What? <laughs> That's insane. I mean, this guy makes Rush Limbaugh look reasonable. <laughs> so, holy crap. I mean, this is bad. But, um... There you have it. God is punishing false religions, and it's the Jews to blame for spreading it, and all you got to do is repent and you'll get healed. The more you learn. Now we go to Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck joined the Chorus of Idiots wanting to rush everything back to normal with a pandemic ripping through the country. Hello, America, and welcome to the program. I uh, sincerely hope that we are not at a place as Americans to where we are going to let the Democrats jam down the Green New Deal because we're at home panicked. Uh... 
I want to have a frank conversation with you and, and ask you where you stand. I, I mean, I'm in the danger zone. Uh, I'm right at the edge. I'm 56. In Italy, they're saying if you're sick and you're 60, don't even come in. So I'm in the danger zone. I would rather have my children stay home and all of us who are over 50 go in and keep this economy going and working. Even if we all get sick, I'd rather die than kill the country. I got to be honest, guys, I don't know how they've all convinced themselves that if you just go, if you just go back to work, is it fixed? Everything's fixed. No, obviously, this is going to have long-lasting effects. Clearly, we've yet to even begin to see the damage of this thing. You can't just pretend like a pandemic isn't happening and then everybody goes back to normal life. It's not going to happen. First of all, not everybody's going to do it. But second of all, even if everybody did do it, you're going to collapse the healthcare system, which is on the brink of collapse in the first place. And that obviously has, you know, a reverberating effect and impact throughout the rest of the economy. You're just, you're going to have, even if you try to get everything back to normal, you're going to have lower demand for vacations on cruise ships, for the airline industry, uh, for travel. So that means the price of oil uh, is affected. All this stuff. There's so much. You can't just, and I've seen so many people have expressed this thought that, oh, like Trump, oh, we're going to open, open the country back up, open it up on Easter. Thankfully, even Trump realized that I can't, that's insane. I can't do that because he was told, bro, over a million people could die. So we pushed it back now to April 30th and then they'll reevaluate then. But, like, the idea that we're going we're gonna to go back, everything's going to be wonderful, everything's going to be tremendous, everybody's gonna, we're going to open the country back up, as if, like, oh, that's it. You snap your finger and imagine the market immediately goes back to the high that it was at beforehand and everything is just hunky-dory. No, you know, a pandemic is going to change people's routine, methinks. Fewer people are going to go to the movies, fewer people are going to go out to restaurants to eat. So there is no, they act like there's a trade-off here. Hey, we can stay home and the economy collapses, or we could go back to normal and then everything is fine. Or you could try to force everything back to normal and the economy still collapses and more people die. That's what's more likely to happen. And they don't, they really haven't thought about that as an option. They really think like, no, if we just force everything back to normal, everything will be back to normal, right? That's what they think. That's what they think. So it's just embarrassingly stupid. But beyond that, Okay, Glenn Beck famously said during the Obama years, and Daily Beast uh, dug up this quote of his, he said that the death panels, so-called death panels in Obamacare, they weren't actually in Obamacare, he said this, quote, we care about the elderly, we value life in this country, and when you start devaluing life, then you're in trouble. So this guy is such a partisan hack that he flipped his position on elderly people dying. That's really something else, isn't it? He went from death panels are bad to let's effectively have our own death panels 
by forcing everybody back to work in a pandemic, which will lead to more deaths primarily of elderly people. I mean, it's just, if you ever needed, I know 99.9% of my audience already knew Glenn Beck was a fool and a moron and a hack. But for the 0.1% that didn't know that, and maybe this video popped up as a recommended, even though YouTube doesn't recommend my videos anymore, but say it popped up as a recommended when somebody was watching a Glenn Beck video because they like Glenn Beck. Really, how do you get out of this one? How do you get out of this one? This is the same thing that the lieutenant governor of Texas said, too. Hey, man, I'd die for the Dow Jones. <laughs> okay, um, I wouldn't, nor would I sacrifice my mom, nor would I sacrifice your parents or grandparents. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. Just wouldn't do it. And like I said, even if we do force everybody back to work, I think the economy is still going to collapse still going to really be in trouble no matter what we do at this point. So it's a stupid conversation to have anyway. But even if I grant him his dynamic, which I don't, I'm not going to have, you know, bodies piling up more and more because you wanted to force everything back to normal and pretend it's normal. That kind of is, in a weird roundabout way, a death panel. And you may have hated them under Obama when they didn't exist. Now you like them. Oh, man. There's not a single thing that the right-wing talking heads won't politicize. There's not a depth that they won't sink to. This is really low. Sorry, grandma and grandpa might have to die. (laughs) If they're willing to make this argument, they'd be willing to make any argument to defend their team. Okay, I got one more of the crazy conservative pundits. Rush Limbaugh never fails when it comes to pushing anti-science idiotic takes. Um, It's tough competition, but this one might be his dumbest yet. It's really, it's 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 a fascinating case study to me, uh, and it's 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 worrisome and it's troublesome. And then the other side of it is, through all of this, I've never had any doubt we're going to come out of it. I've never had any doubt we're going to come out of it stronger, and we're going to come out of it healthy. And I think it's imperative that we have somebody like Donald Trump, who is outside the establishment expert class who has a history of solving problems to actually lead the country through this. You know, we've talked about the deep state all these years since Trump was elected, the Trump-Russia collusion, the FBI. Well, the deep state extends very deeply. And the American people did not elect a bunch of health experts that we don't know. We didn't elect a president to defer to a bunch of health experts that we don't know. Now, how do we know they're even health experts? Well, they wear white lab coats, and they've been in the job for a while, and there's the CDC, and there's the NIH, and they're, well, 
Yeah, they've been there and they are there, but has there been any job assessment for them? They're just assumed to be the best because they're in government, but uh, I, these are all kinds of things that I have, I have been, I've been questioning. And I've been watching people routinely accept whatever the authorities say. Yeah, uh, they don't come more anti-establishment than me. They just don't. I'm as anti-establishment as it gets. And I absolutely trust the scientists and the doctors. Because when it comes to science and when it comes to medicine, you're dealing with an actual meritocracy. You know how you become a world-renowned doctor? Being a really damn good doctor. You know how you become a world-renowned scientist? Being a really damn good scientist. If there was ever, there's a few remaining bastions of meritocracy in this world that we live in. One of them is actually sports. It's purest meritocracy. You know, you go out there, you all, everybody starts at zero, and whoever wins, wins. Go. But also, science and medicine. Yeah, they're health experts because they are experts on health. <laughs> so there's not, like he's arguing health experts are part of the deep state. Based on what? Based on what? Well, a lot of them worked under Democratic administrations. Yeah, and they also worked under Republican administrations. Like, the, the level of conspiracy thinking that gets you to this point, where you think that, you know, health experts are part of the deep state and they're nefarious, like, what do you think is actually happening, Rush? Are the health experts, because he might actually believe this, the health experts are giving Trump bad advice on purpose so that Trump crashes the economy and then loses re-election. I think that Rush really thinks that that's what they're doing, that they're nefarious, deep state people just trying to take Trump down however they can, and they've infiltrated, and they're getting him to make bad decisions on purpose, which will hurt his re-election chances. You know, I'm a big believer in Occam's razor, which just means that the simplest explanation is usually correct. And the simplest explanation when it comes to health experts in the government is that they're health experts. So, and again, this is coming from everybody knows nobody can question my anti-establishment credentials. I'm as anti-establishment as they come. But here we have one of the remaining areas where you want the elite, you want an elite doctor to be working on you, you know, uh, Financial elites, that's not a meritocracy at all, at all. Uh, but when it comes to health, yes, there's a real meritocracy. Um, now, add this to his long list of anti-science takes. I mean, this is a guy who's denied climate change repeatedly. He doesn't even believe in evolution. He's denied evolution. Um, if I'm not mistaken... He, oh, yes, he's a Big Bang denier. And you know what his argument was? I'm not kidding about this. Were they there? He asked if the scientists were there during the Big Bang. How do they know? They weren't even there, bro. I mean, this is literally like a debate you have with your buddies in, like, ninth grade. You're all a bunch of idiots, and you're talking about stuff, and it's like, well, the Big Bang, the way that works, how do you know, bro? Were you there? <laughs> this is what he knows. He's denied that. He's, he thinks hurricane warnings are a hoax. He thinks they're a hoax. He's spoken about that multiple times. 
So this is who we're dealing with. And by the way, Rush is, a, is in the group of people who are likely to be killed by the coronavirus because he has lung cancer and he's getting treatment. So his immune system's down. And we know coronavirus impacts the lungs. So if he were to get coronavirus, he could definitely die. He's got late-stage cancer, and the coronavirus attacks the lungs. Come on, man. Don't, like, don't play around with this. Don't be dumb. Um, and the final thing I'll say is, he, you know, he talks about you've got to question authority in there. Like, that's his whole point. Got to question the authority, guys. Come on. But, Rush, your entire career has been to bend the knee to authority. That's your whole career. Rush Limbaugh's entire career can be summed up like this. He's a petty, sycophantic authoritarian who swallows whole Republican propaganda and then pushes it out there himself. His whole shtick is Republicans good, Democrats bad. Nobody is more of an authoritarian. Nobody is more of a follower of conventional wisdom than you, Rush. You know, on this show, and you guys know this, he brings up, oh, the deep state, like they, they pushed the Trump-Russia uh, collusion hoax and impeachment. Like, yeah, and I was skeptical of Russiagate, and I was skeptical of impeachment. But I'm not at all skeptical of a pandemic being bad, <laughs> the coronavirus being bad, and hurting people, and bodies piling up. I know it's happening in my city. So it's just, he really does bend the knee to Republican orthodoxy all the time. And now he's acting like, me, bro, I'm an, I'm an anti-establishment outsider. That's what I am. Or maybe you're just a dumbass. You ever thought of that? Because I'm pretty sure you're that. Okay. Let's talk about the last story of the day, Federal Reserve. Here we go. Here we go. The former Federal Reserve chairman and the current one both agree on a key issue, and this directly relates to the crisis that's going on right now, not just the pandemic, but the economic fallout. And um, you're going to see here Jerome Powell is the first one, current um, Federal Reserve Chairman, and then you'll see Ben Bernanke, who was in charge during the 2008 crash. The Federal Reserve doesn't exactly print money, but as one writer put it, you do have the ability to conjure money out of thin air. My question to you is simple. Is there any limit to the amount of money the Fed is willing to put into this economy to keep it afloat? Is it a blank check? Savannah, we, uh, in certain circumstances like the present, uh, we do have the ability to uh, essentially use our emergency lending authorities. And uh, the only limit on that will be how much uh, backstop we get from the Treasury Department. We're, we're required to uh, get full security for our loans so that we don't lose money. Uh, and so the Treasury puts up money uh, as we estimate what the losses might be. But um, essentially, the answer to your question, though, is no. We can, we can continue to, to, uh, to make loans, and really the, the point uh, of all that is to support the flow of credit in the economy to households and businesses. Is that tax money that the Fed is spending? It's not tax money. The banks have 
um, accounts with the Fed, much the same way that you have an account in a commercial bank. So to lend to a bank, we simply use the computer to mark up the uh, size of the account that they have with the Fed. So it's much more akin, uh, although not exactly the same, but it's much more akin to printing money than it is to borrowing. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? So basically, you have the Federal Reserve chairman. They all agree. We control our currency. We're a sovereign country. We have our own currency. So if we need to, we just mark up the account. Money based on nothing, printing money. And move a decimal point on the computer, and we're done. And there's also wide agreement that when you're in a crisis, you have to spend your way out of it. Now, this is, you know, this is the logic of is what FDR did during the Great Depression. Hey, we need a new deal. We need a new deal. We're in the midst of the Great Depression. Everybody's out of work. Unemployment is skyrocketing. I'm going to put the country back to work. I'm going to put them back to work uh, doing infrastructure projects, having programs that get money to people. So, yeah, it actually is widely agreed upon that when the rubber hits the road and there's a real crisis, this is what we have to do. So, in other words, you're not buying into the logic of the Austrian economists who, you know, want us back on the gold standard, for example, and are super concerned about um, the deficits and the national debt. And they say, hey, you got to take a hands-off approach, and, you know, you can't just artificially prop up the money supply and just print money. That's what the Austrian economists would say. Then you have the Keynesians who are more in agreement with this philosophy. But in my opinion, it looks like all these guys are modern monetary theorists. And Stephanie Kelton is somewhere watching this smiling right now because they all agree with her. What she says is, yeah, we have our own currency. We control our own currency. We have to control inflation, but we could just mark up the account and spend if we want. Now, I want you to take note of what is unanimous agreement on this front. You're seeing it right now. Under Democratic administrations, under Republican administrations, the, you know, the head of the central bank is like, yeah, this is what we do. Okay. So if we agree that in the time of crisis, you can just fix it, you spend your way out of it, why do we not consider the 45,000 people who die every year because they don't have basic health care? Why is that not a crisis? And by the way, it's 45,000 to 68,000. Is that not a crisis? Is the tens of millions of people without health insurance, is that not a crisis? Is the 500,000 homeless people in this country, is that not a crisis? Is the 78% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, is that not a crisis? Is half of workers making $30,000 a year or less, is that not a crisis? Are these things, climate change not a crisis? That's not a crisis? So I think you get my point. My point is the only time it's like widely agreed upon that we're in a crisis is when the market falls, when we enter a bear market, when we have a sharp drop in the market. Oh, my God, the Dow Jones and the NASDAQ. That's when the Fed is like, oh, oh, we better do something. But when there are the everyday crises of regular working people and poor people, they're just like, oh. Our concern is the market. Well, maybe that's the problem. And if you want to say, hey, look, that's a little different. It's not tax money. It's the central bank. Fair enough. But shouldn't we also have that same logic and same approach when it comes to 
the government when it comes to the House of Representatives and the Senate and the President, the legislative branch and the executive branch. Why wouldn't we have that same approach? And by the way, we do have it in certain circumstances. They didn't pay for that multi-trillion dollar tax cut. The 2017 Republican tax cut, which was like the Bush tax cuts on steroids, multi-trillion dollar tax cut bill, 83% of the benefits went to the top 1% and the corporations. They didn't pay for it. They just said, oh, we're going to do this. Why? Because we value it, so we're going to do it. Okay, but you're adding to the deficit in the national debt. I don't care. We're going to do it. We could do it. What do you mean? How could you do it? You're not even paying for it. We control our currency. We could do whatever the hell we want. If we want to increase the deficit, that's, we, we have every ability to do that. We do. And it's not like those people didn't get the tax cuts because it, you know, you're adding to the, to the deficit in the process. No. It still had the impact. So, same theory applied. You could just give everybody health care. You could just do Medicare for all. And you don't have to pay for it. Now, we could have a debate as to whether or not you should. And, you know, usually when the economy is roaring and doing well, you want to have confiscatory policy. So you're basically saving for a rainy day. So, you know, you're taking in more money than you're spending out. But when the economy hits a rough patch, you're supposed to do the opposite. You're supposed to spend more. You're supposed to do deficit spending. Spend your way out of the crisis. So... We can have a debate as to whether or not it's reasonable to pay for it, but the idea that you have to pay for it is just fundamentally untrue when you control your own currency. Again, you always have to worry about inflation, and you have to be cognizant of that, but broadly speaking, you control your own currency, you can do what you want. So if we wanted to pay for Medicare for All, if we wanted to, if we wanted to do free college, we could easily do it easily do it. And by the way, we're talking about peanuts, at least in the case of free college, it's like $60 billion or $80 billion. That's nothing. We just, they just casually passed a $4.5 trillion bailout. You couldn't do free college? Of course they could. You can't wipe the debt slate clean? Trillion dollars to wipe the debt slate clean, or $1.5 to wipe the debt slate clean for student loans. They can do that. They choose not to do that. So this is my point, guys. Do not let them gaslight you, because they will do that. And they will keep asking anytime it's something that helps regular people, are you pay for it? Come on, boy, you pay for it. They'll always throw it out there. They'll always throw it out there. But they're gaslighting you. Because clearly, as you can see, everybody agrees. Left, right, and center in a time of crisis. Oh, we just do it. We just do what we have to do. That's it. We just do it. Well, to me... Stopping 45,000 to 68,000 people dying because they don't have health care every year, that's a crisis. And you know how we should stop that? We should just do it. We'll worry about how we pay for it later. Okay. Okay. We are done for the day, bitch. All right, guys, I love you. Everybody keep social distancing, and I hope everybody's doing okay in this crisis. Try not to go crazy. Try to go for a walk, but stay as far away from people as you can. Um, Love y'all, and I'll talk to you soon. Peace.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.